Good morning, everyone, and welcome to A Vision for You, special edition. Today is Sunday, October 18th, 2020. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater and your moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 16th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,557. That's one five. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,559. That's 15559. This morning, A Vision for You presents Self-Knowledge Availed Her Nothing. We come to this program as a result of the frustration, suffering, and despair we experience in our disease of compulsive overeating. We are in a vicious cycle. As real compulsive overeaters, we are bodily and mentally different from others. Once we put certain foods into our body, it reacts in a way that demands more of the same. And we have an obsession of the mind, which hijacks us and takes us back to those very foods that we know will cause us the irresistible yearning for more of the same. We become conscious of having no choice. We may learn about the illness. We may know and gain a lot of information. We may read books about our disease And we may even gain great knowledge about the recovery process. We study. We learn. We recite. We may attend meetings with other compulsive overeaters. And yet, we eat again. And again. And again. And again. We can't control the amount we eat because of our body. And we can't stop and stay stopped because of our mind. Knowledge and information do not equate to transformation. Truly no choice and truly no power. We find ourselves in a deep pit of personal powerlessness, which becomes the driving force of desperation to be ready and willing to do anything which will free us from the bondage of our disease. The OA 12 Steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Joining us today to share her experience, strength, and hope is Alicia N., a recovered compulsive overeater from Richmond, Virginia. Alicia is dedicated and grateful for our 12-step path and is eager to tell her story of recovery with all of us today. And it's with great appreciation and excitement to welcome Alicia to the line today. Good Good morning, morning, Leah. Good morning. Leah, thank you and all the OA fellows who are dedicated and committed to a vision for you. I appreciate the opportunity to share my experience strength, and hope with you all. I'm Alicia N., a recovered compulsive overeater in Richmond, Virginia. 
I gratefully use the word recovered since I no longer experience the physical craving, the mental obsession, nor the hopelessness of this disease. And now my story. I'm 67 years old. I've been married for 45 years with three adult children and three grandchildren. I'm 5'5 and have worn sizes 4 to size 14. My highest weight has been 165 and my lowest was 125. I don't weigh myself today, but I did sneak a peek at my last doctor visit, <laughs> and it was 129. In my addiction, I would weigh myself daily, and I've owned an analog scale, a digital scale, and a medical scale. Then it was suggested to me to get rid of my home scale since it contributed to my mental chatter. You know, if the number was high, I took it as an excuse to binge. I figured, what the hell? And if the number was low, I figured, why not binge? I once saw a cartoon of two little girls standing beside a scale. One of the little girls pointed to the scale and said, don't get on that. It makes you cry. That really uh, resonated with me. My earliest memory is not of binging, but of cleaning, organizing, and rearranging. As a preteen, I remember making my bed, making my parents' bed, organizing my mom's closet, and rearranging my bedroom furniture. Cleaning and eating have always been the two behaviors that have calmed my anxiety. Here are a few details about my family. Both my parents were food addicted. My mother was a hoarder. She loved sugar, and she loved me. My dad was a book dealer and author who spent his waking hours in our basement with his beloved books, and he could easily eat an entire loaf of challah bread at a Friday night dinner. My mom was a controller, and my dad was emotionally and physically absent, and so my resentments were born. I was the only daughter and middle child of three. Early on, I learned to be a good girl in order to stay under the radar. I had an older brother who suffered with diabetes and eventually kidney failure, he died two years ago at the age of 70. And then there's my younger brother who seems to have escaped compulsive overeating. My maternal grandparents were diabetic and both had leg amputations before they eventually passed away. I grew up in an angry home. The anger wasn't expressed, but you could cut it with a knife. I remember feeling confused, afraid, and alone. I didn't trust anyone and God fell into that same category. At some point, I decided that I didn't need anyone. I preferred being alone and self-sufficient. I was born into a Jewish home. It was understood that we believed in God, but there was no mention of a spiritual or a religious God. I'd like to share a side note that makes me chuckle. On one of the many occasions when I was struggling in OA, I was advised to get on my knees, and I immediately thought, I can't get on my knees and pray. Jews don't pray on their knees, right? You know, all of a sudden, I'm a religious Jew. <laughs> One of my great excuses. Okay, now the rest of the story. My first memory of binging was at 12 years old, while babysitting five kids, and by the way, for 50 cents an hour. I would hurry them off to bed so that I could rummage through their kitchen, eating from their bags of junk food, then shaking up the contents before returning it to the cabinet hoping they wouldn't notice. Then there were afternoons after school when I would return home to a loving nanny 
who allowed me a bag of chips while I watched TV. High school presented new problems. I was overweight and depressed. My maiden name was Ginsburg, so the bullies enjoyed calling me guinea pig. I did get some reprieve once I left for college. In fact, it was the only time in my life when I found something more exciting than food. That would be sex. I was at my lowest weight, and I was high on love. My addiction to food took off when I hit my 20s. I was preoccupied with wanting food, wanting to be thin, and weighing myself daily. Just two weeks after my college graduation, at 22 years old, I married a dentist. My Jewish mother's dream come true. (laughs) My mother would introduce us as her daughter, Alicia, and her son-in-law, Dr. Navon. Neither my new dentist husband nor I had any clue about my food addiction, even when my first dental exam with him revealed eight cavities. Right after I got married, I returned to graduate school to obtain a master's degree in counseling. I didn't understand why I was so fascinated with addiction studies, and I took every course that was offered. I was mystified that I had an uncanny sixth sense when learning about alcoholism and addiction. It just seemed so familiar. In fact, it sounded just like my home of origin, except there wasn't a drop of alcohol. I didn't start a counseling practice until we finished having a family and our youngest would be in preschool. I had three babies in four years, gaining 50 pounds with each pregnancy despite my doctor's warnings. Pregnancy was wonderful. I could eat as much as I wanted, even in public, without feeling guilty or embarrassed. In fact, our three kids grew up thinking that a family box of brownies only produced three brownies (laughs) with a glass of milk. And there were the midnight lunches, preparing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the kids' school lunches, giving me the opportunity to be alone and eat. Then, of course, Halloween meant three huge pillowcases of goodies. Even though they counted their candy, they never missed the doubles and triples that I would steal and eat from their stash. I was lying to everyone. I hated myself and I felt ashamed. I can compare my lies to Pinocchio. When Pinocchio lied, his nose grew. When I lied, my ass grew. I was angry at the world. Everyone was to blame for my unhappiness. My husband was a workaholic, and I was binging and juggling three small children. I ate to escape the pain in my feelings and to quiet the physical cravings. Every day I heard myself reciting the OA Pledge of Allegiance. This is it. That was my last binge. Today's the day. Then by late morning, I'd be chasing the food again. My knees became proficient at steering the car while I used my hands to binge. My car became my safe place for binging and hiding my food and wrappers. Then in January 1986, I saw an advertisement in the Sunday Richmond Times-Dispatch for Richmond's first OA Newcomers Open House. I knew I had to go to find out what was wrong with me. 
what was causing this mysterious and destructive relationship with food. I came into OA thinking it was a diet club with great meetings and a lot of warm and fuzzy people. So I lost 20 pounds, then I gained 25, then I lost it, then I gained it. (laughs) Eventually, I came to believe that I had an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, and an emptiness of the spirit. Once I consume my allergic foods, the physical craving and the mental and the mental obsession are triggered. I experience what the big book calls mental blank spots or euphoric you call, recall, euphoric you recall, if you will, where I forget the pain and consequence of my binges, only remembering what the food did for me, not to me. I've learned that when my emotions build up or I experience an emotional disturbance, the mental twist tells me that I need the special effect of the food to provide me with ease and comfort and to sedate and numb my feelings. You know, I'm feeling so emotional right now. It's interesting just reading my words and um, I'm glad my emotions and my um, voice are coming from my sadness and gratefulness versus being nervous today. It feels really good. My story includes a progressive 10-year relapse, a vicious spiral of binging and restricting. Every binge was my last. I thought the words, this really is my last binge, would be a great epitaph on my gravestone. (laughs) It was to be more than 3,000 days of the morning after mental torture, the bewilderment and frustration of why I kept binging, and the despair of knowing I couldn't stop. I self-medicated my anxiety and anger with binging. Even the happy moments were dulled by the food. I wondered if I was one of those who Bill described in the big book on page 58, who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. If so, then maybe I should just throw in the towel, and that thought would bring me relief and fear. During those years, I prayed to be willing. I prayed to be willing to be willing to be willing. I heard someone say, you'll hit bottom when you stop digging. Well, I couldn't stop digging. On page 43 of the big book, it says most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Well, badly mangled sounds pretty painful. And pain is usually addiction's intervener. You know, that emotional pain that finally brings us crawling into the rooms. Well, nothing had touched my pain over those 10 years until a dear friend, not in program, but of course a child of an alcoholic, lovingly confronted me and said, Alicia, you've tried everything. Please get the help you need. I've spent 34 years in and out of the OA rooms as well as both inpatient and outpatient treatment. I've ridden the roller coaster of pink clouds, glorious recovery, and humiliating relapse. All of this has been invaluable to my journey. I grew up with the teenage misconception and resentment that I didn't need anyone. However, now as a recovered adult, that's just not true. Some of my most grateful memories include the elementary school, 
librarian when I was in second grade asked me to be her assistant. I would shelve books, and here's the big one. I don't know how many of you remember this, but there was this stamp that changes the dates, <laughs> and you stamp it on an ink pad, and I stamped the date in my classmates' library book. I mean, I felt so special. <laughs> there was the ninth grade science teacher who took me under her wing and gave me that extra attention and tutoring. And in my freshman year of college, an unforgettable moment when an older student I had never spoken to approached me on the last day of our class, our class that was entitled Education of Self, to ask me, why are you so angry? Well, I was speechless. Then there's my college professor who chaired the Addiction Studies Program 45 years ago, who remains my mentor and friend. So without going through all the ebbies in my life, I can honestly say today that I never did it alone. And of course, I must give all the credit to my greatest supporter, God. I even have a funny God story, once again illustrating I can't do it alone. One sunny April morning, I was driving in my yellow VW Super Beetle to the airport to pick up our daughter from a job interview she had had in Boston. I'm happily moving along on the highway when I see all the cars in front of me start moving to the right and left. It was then that I was able to see bags of hamburger buns and their colorful trays that store them flying out of the back of a truck. <laughs> Unfortunately, I ran over one of those trays, dragging it with me as I carefully drove to the side of the highway. I got out of my car and spent 15 minutes waving my arms at approaching cars while saying, Oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe no one is stopping to help me. Then a car pulls over, not too far in front of me. A young woman gets out of the car and I thought, shoot, I need a man. <laughs> As she approached, I said, Debbie? And she responded, Alicia? It was a friend from program that I hadn't seen in many, many years. She helped me remove the bread tray from underneath my VW, and we went on our way, both of us in disbelief of such a coincidence. Or as Harlan might say, is that odd or is that God? That was my funny God story. And this next story would have to be my thank you God story, which involved my mother and her daughter, me, who held on to resentment way too long. At 86 years old, my mom moved from Florida to Richmond for family support. I had always carried a guilty resentment toward her for not being the mother I wanted or needed. Long story short, I was crying and driving home alone after attending a close friend's funeral. My tears of grief for my friend seemed to shift into tears over the loss of my relationship with my mother. Instinctively, I called her, and as soon as she answered the phone, I blurted out, Mom, no matter what you did or didn't do, I love you. You're my mother. I've always loved you. We both cried almost instantly. I felt freedom from a resentment I had held on to for too many years. I finally understood that I had to accept and forgive 
before I could be free. In fact, when she was in hospice, I remember feeling so helpless, not knowing what to say. And when she said to me she was afraid, I said to her, and this didn't come from me, (laughs) this came from up above. I said, Mom, God brought you into this life and he's going to take you out. And I hugged her. I laid on the bed with her and I put my arm around her. At this point, she could hardly speak and move. And I felt her arm come around me and pat my back. It was just an amazing experience. Then in February of 2018, my recovery really took a turn with the help of a visionary sponsor. I discovered a new recovery that gave me much more than what I previously had had with a white-knuckled abstinence and a drive-by higher power. In my years of self-willed abstinence, I had gotten relief, but I had never gotten freedom. As quoted on the big book, from the big book, page 85, I'm now experiencing a position of neutrality with my food and a spiritual peace of mind. We worked the steps, my sponsor and I worked the steps as we read the big book together, just as I do now with my sponsees. I discovered that if I put my effort into the steps, then my food would be effortless. She asked me to make three lists consisting of my red, yellow, and green foods. I was clear about both my red or allergic foods and my green or safe foods. But that's when I saw that the yellow list were actually red foods that I was screwing around with. My abstinence is not perfect. However, my goal is entire abstinence. The expression, wear your recovery like a cloak, not a straitjacket, helps me stay out of the perfection mode. But also, I'm careful not to condone any of my excuses. Since I'm unable to distinguish between physical or emotional hunger or control my portions, I weigh and measure my food. My food plan is a food plan that works for me. I'm a believer that not one food plan works for all. But if I'm maintaining a healthy weight without food obsessions and cravings, then my food plan is working. Just to give you an idea, I abstain from processed sugar and flour, diet sodas, caffeine, artificial sweeteners, including stevia, any nuts that are roasted or salted, sugar-free gum, sugar-free throat lozenges, energy bars, protein bars, and the beat goes on. Um, I add more and more to this list as the years go by. Um, Out of willingness and also out of the desire to want freedom from this food. I'd like to quote the big book before I tell you what happens next. On page 164, it tells us, so you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. Well, soon after I worked the steps through the big book with my new sponsor, I was asked to speak at an evening meeting here in Richmond. After such a profound step experience, I asked if I could instead lead a big book study on the doctor's opinion for that evening meeting. I could hardly contain myself 
I was so full of enthusiasm and excitement with the opportunity to pass the word as it had been passed to me. At the conclusion of that meeting, someone asked me to sponsor them. And without hesitation, I gratefully said yes. And so sponsoring through the big book began and it hasn't stopped. Over the years, I thought that the meetings were the program or the serenity prayer held the secret or the tools were the answer. I didn't understand that my recovery lies in the steps. The steps are my program. Not that these other parts of the program aren't important. They are, and they contribute to the support I need to work my program. As I've heard on this line, the tools are the handrails of the steps. My spiritual awakening, as experienced through the 12 steps, was a wake-up call, allowing me to understand that God is everything and he is here for me, that God could and would if he were sought. Every day I have the same choice. I can choose either food or God. I understand now that my abstinence is directly connected to my spiritual life. In my addiction, I worshiped food and the scale. There was no room for a higher power. And sponsoring others has been yet another path to a spiritual connection for me. My sponsor's expectation of me from day one was very obvious as she would insert throughout the step work that I was going to be an awesome sponsor. And I thought, how does she know? I told her that I never really sponsored. I either used my counseling skills or I told myself that I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't know how to sponsor. And besides, my meetings took up enough of my time. Well, now after being sponsored with the steps and wisdom of the big book, the vision meetings, I realize that I need to sponsor and I need to do service in order to keep this newfound recovery. Page 89 in the big book tells us that practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Then on page 94, it says, actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. It is awesome when I hang up after a big book step session with a sponsee. We both can't stop thanking each other. She thanks me. I thank her. It's like a love fest. It's crazy. It's amazing. Another essential belief for me lies on pages 450 to 451 in the big book. Quote, then I realized that I had to separate my sobriety from everything else that was going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety. The tides of life flow endlessly, for better or worse, both good and bad, and I cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent on these ups and downs of living. Sobriety must have a life of its own, unquote. The steps offer me a design for living through the good, the bad, and the ugly. My recovery must be dependent upon God, not on my feelings or thoughts. 
And I have a miraculous, miraculous example of this that occurred just last year. Only with God's grace, my sponsor, and the fellowship was I able to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually present to help our 39-year-old daughter get through a preventive double mastectomy. Through an online health and ancestry saliva test, she found out that she carries a gene mutation for breast cancer, otherwise known as BRCA2, putting her at a very high risk for breast cancer. This test was confirmed by more testing through several genetics counselors and oncologists. Throughout the surgery and the reconstruction, I could still hear my sponsor's voice. When I first called her with the news, I asked her, why shouldn't I binge to get through this? There was a pause. Then she told me that binging would be totally selfish at a time when my daughter needed me most. Well, that felt like a much-needed bucket of cold water hit me in the face. She did me a huge favor. (laughs) The wisdom of this program. So, according to my education, both from school and the big book, I didn't cause this addiction. I can't control it. I can't cure it. But I am responsible for my recovery. I may be powerless, but I am not helpless. And that brings me again to God. I have always believed that there is a power greater than myself. However, my self-will prevailed. I've since learned that my self-will has a very loud voice compared to God's quiet voice. And I must get past my self-willed voice to hear God's voice. I cannot control what I think or feel, but I can control what I do. I need to do the next right thing regardless of my thoughts and feelings. I often think of the action slogans to encourage me. So what? Now what? Move a muscle, change a thought. Give feet to my prayers. My recovery must be a doing recovery, capital D-O. Doing recovery actions, weighing and measuring an abstinent food plan, zooming meetings, listening to vision, calling my fellows, sponsoring, exercising, self-caring, and most importantly, having an ongoing and trusting relationship with my higher power, whom I call God. By the way, I don't imagine my higher power as a he or a she or an it. For me, God is beyond gender. For most of my years in OA, there were two forms of denial operating. I denied the power and progression of this disease, and I minimized the ongoing work required to obtain and maintain a daily solution. It has occurred to me that these recovery actions also serve as a relapse prevention, if you will. My God consciousness, daily 10th step sponsoring and service keep me mindfully aware of the daily management required to keep my disease at bay. In 1976, when I graduated with a degree in counseling, then became certified and licensed to work with addictive disorders, I knew that addiction was primary, progressive, chronic, and fatal. We were told 
that in 1956, the American Medical Association even declared that alcoholism was a disease. In fact, it's the only disease ever to have been voted on declaring it to be a disease. So there I was, the A-plus student, who thought she had all the answers, except when it came to me and my addiction. After all, I was unique. It was an addictions counselor. On page 39 in the big book, it says, the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be, and here come the italics, absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. <laughs> In 1986, when I came into OA, I found understanding, acceptance, and love. Much more powerful than my degree ever was. <laughs> I was told that I didn't even need brains, only a surrendering of my dishonesty and self-will. My fourth and fifth steps revealed a fearful, self-righteous, judgmental, people-pleasing controller, although with the potential to be a grateful, God-centered, humble helper. And of course, I prefer the latter. Living in humility is so much more peaceful than living in my ego, which I find exhausting. Now I want to be just another bozo on that bus and be a perpetual student of this divine text we call the big book. I'd like to close with a Buddhist story that I hope to never forget. So God called a council of the lesser gods to ask them where they should hide the key to heaven. One of the gods suggested in the deepest depths of the ocean or the tallest mountain or even the moon. And God replied that none of these ideas will work. Humans will explore the far reaches of the universe. They will dive to the bottom of the ocean and climb the highest mountain. But then God said, I have the answer. I know the one place that humans will never look for the key to heaven. That place is within themselves, right in the core of their being. Thank you so much for letting me do this service. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Alicia, for sharing this beautiful story of transformation, profound story. Thank you for including your personal insights and remarkable transformation with all of us today. The share ID for this presentation, 15,569. That's 15569. Alicia's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I will need your name and your first letter of your last name as well. Jason K. Jason. Miriam K. Miriam K. Kathy K. Kathy K. Suzanne G. Suzanne G. Anyone else? 
All right, let's get started with this group. I have Jason K, Miriam K, Cassie K, and Suzanne G. Go ahead, Jason. Everybody else, please mute. Thanks. Good morning. This is Jason K. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, the question I have is, why do you think this path of self-knowledge and, you know, even pursuing academic things is so alluring and, you know, tempting and that people kind of go down that path? And, and then what do you do to kind of shift people if you feel like they're pursuing that path and, and they aren't really um, surrendering and hitting a spiritual uh, approach, but they're caught <laughs> in their head? I'm sorry, I missed the very first part, why they pursue um, going uh, yeah, into what? those. You may need to press star one again. I can't hear hey, you, Jason. Hey, sorry, okay, sorry, I just, uh, yeah. So why is the path of self-knowledge so alluring or so tempting? And then how do you shift people out of that if you're sponsoring somebody and they seem to be caught in you know, some version of intellectualism or, or not really going to that spiritual um, side of things? Well, for myself, um, I can tell you that um, I was brought up believing that education was the end-all, be-all. And um, I certainly was looking for an answer for myself. I, I think that part of my allure to uh going into the field I went into was that I remember being at a very early age, uh, probably about 10 years old, having my mother come in my bedroom crying and telling me how lonely she was. And I felt like at 10 years old, I was her counselor. Um, so for me, counseling seemed to be an answer. Um, sometimes I've always heard <laughs> that we go into what we need. But as far as self-knowledge, I, I, I think that my brain is... Um, looking for some kind of answer, and especially when it comes to addiction. Um, you know, I don't want to look inside. I, I want the answers. I want the silver bullet. I want the magic bullet that's going to tell me the answers A, B, C, D to do so I can just do that, whether it's going to a, a pay-in way, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, um, the self-knowledge um, will be my answer. Never, never did I thought that I'd be looking into a program like this versus just a diet that tells me what to do and what to eat and how to think. Um, so I think self-knowledge is the easier, easier way. Um, and as far as when that happens with a sponsee, I have to hope that the big book and my sharing my experience, strength, and hope will eventually sink in uh, through the layers of denial. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, I used to think that, and the big book talks about um, the easier, softer way. Well, this, working the program has been the easier, softer way for me. And um, as I've said in my share, self-knowledge just didn't help me get to this spiritual place, to this, this uh, peace around my body and my, and my food. Thank you for the question. Thank you, Jason K. Miriam K. Star one to unmute. Am I being heard? Yes. 
Okay. Good morning. Thank you very much for your service, Leah, and thank you, Alicia, for your share. Um, I got really a lot out of it. Uh, what I wanted to know if you could expand on a little bit is you mentioned, I think on page 450 and 451, um, where it talks about making sure my abstinence is separated from anything that's going on in my life. Um, how, maybe you could expand for me on how you were able, like what practical steps you took to help this happen because in my intellect I understand that but I'm finding that very hard um, as I go through the steps more I've been through the steps more than once I still find somehow my um, emotional sobriety is very connected to my abstinence okay thank you for the question um, for me for for my experience I um, unfortunately uh, had to keep stepping in the hole before I learned to walk around the hole. And um, I, I guess I also could learn from the 10 years of relapse uh, where everything uh, was connected um, to, my, to my food and my feelings. Um, I did not have a separate sobriety, uh, allowing myself to um, be in my food plan, be in my spiritual program, and not letting uh, life's ups and downs get to me. I, I don't know that I can give you, uh, you know, a one, two, three, four answer uh, for what I did. I think for myself it had to come more from um, the ups and downs of, of, of what I was doing to myself, what I was choosing to do. And um, it took me years, years, and uh, a sponsor who took me through the big book, and that was the first time I'd done the steps through the big book. And it uh, just made all sense to me, and it worked. I trusted God. I trusted my sponsor. I trusted the program. And um, I I'm not sure there's a, a very easy answer for that, except that I, I think I trusted. I probably at that time, when the beginning, when this first started, after my sponsor took me through the steps, it was more of a blind trust. But now I see the benefit of keeping my emotions and my thoughts separate from my sobriety. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam Kay. Kathy Kay, your turn. Uh, thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Alicia. It was wonderful to hear you today. I'm wondering if you can say more about what you do on a daily basis to live 10, 11, and 12. Thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, on a daily basis, um, I, as far as step 10, I, um, I've, done, I've worked that so many ways. Every time someone, you know, had a A-E-I-O-U or, you know, A stands for this and O stands, it's like... And and I you know do the questions um, from the, the the fourth step asking myself was I dishonest was I self seeking you know um, was I fearful um, I'd have questions I posted in my closet when I got dressed in the morning or when I got undressed at night I would look at the questions and then I realized that I was going in and out of my closet morning and night and never paying attention to those questions. Um, 
So I had to find a 10th step that worked for me. And uh, I was really, um, I, I, I got such a good answer when I was listening to, I believe, yes, it was a special edition earlier in the month. I believe it was Allison who shared about 10th step. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I do. And um, that must be, you know, um, approved. And it was like, you know, this this program, the 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 choices that we're allowed um, are so wonderful. You know, we can we can conceive of a higher power, the of our understanding. We can find a food plan for ourselves that works for us. We can, um, or I can, do my tenth step and eleventh step the way I'd like to do that, um, or, or I should say the way it works for me. And my 10th step, I work throughout the day. And there are some 10th steps, there are some resentments that occur during my day that I solve in, in a few minutes with myself and God. There are other 10th steps that I need to call uh, another fellow in the program and just let her hear me out and let me identify where I've been selfish or dishonest. Um, and in fact, I'll give you a very quick example of a very quick 10th step that I had just the other day. I was talking to someone who I, would, I was classifying my mind in my mind as a yenta and a braggart. I'm sure you know what a braggart is, but a yenta is uh, a word that is used for a person who is just a busybody, a person who is, you know, loves to gossip. And um, I'm talking to this person, and they are bragging away, and I could just feel my stomach. I could feel the emotional buildup. And then I heard myself say, Alicia, you've been both a yenta and a braggart. You're just jealous. And that brief tenth step between me and God neutralized my jealousy and judgment immediately. So the 10th step I worked throughout the day, the morning and evening just didn't seem to work for me, but um, I do it throughout the day. The 11th step, prayer and meditation, I'll have to quote on page 101 in AA's 12 and 12, which I, interestingly enough, now read each week with a, a sponsee that I took through the steps. Uh, we've been reading this together and discussing it. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. And um, it says on page 101 in AA's 12 and 12 that prayer and meditation, quote, are, is an individual adventure, something each of us works out in his own way. Well, that, that allowed me to come up with um, uh, prayer and meditation uh, protocol, if you will, for me. And... Um, I wake up in the morning, I thank God for another day, I pray to do God's will and not mine. Um, I also find prayer and meditation to remind me that I'm not alone. Prayer and meditation for me, stopping before the morning starts and at the end of my evening and actually it's really, for me, a daily exchange of prayer and meditation throughout the day, the day. And I used to think, maybe that's not the right way to do it. But, you know, I'm finding, as I just said, it's 
whatever works for me. So I have found it to be humbling. I have find it, I found it to be a daily reminder of who's in charge. And also meditation has been um, a way to look at myself, with myself and with God. So I, I do prayer and meditation. I, I do um, it in the morning. I do it at night. But I mostly have to say that I carry it through my day and have daily exchanges, informal, ongoing exchanges throughout the day. Um, as far as step 12, sponsoring, I do a lot of service in our local um, <clears throat> in our local meetings and, and intergroup. And um, I also um, have, well, I've, I've said I, I've served on 12 Step Within to pass the word within the fellowship. And um, also I sponsor now. And as I said in my share, I need to sponsor. I thought all these years, and we're talking 34 years, that I could get through this program without sponsoring. Well, sure, I can get through the program without sponsoring, but it's also going to be without recovery. So I just had no idea how important service and sponsoring are. And I thank you for that question. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Suzanne G, star one to unmute. Your turn. Uh, good morning, and uh, Leah, thank you for your service. And Alicia, thank you so much for your very inspiring and enlightening story. It was a joy to hear your voice. Um, I'm thinking once you take someone through the steps, the question I have is what guidance do you give them at the end or do you, you know, carry on with them for the rest of their recovery? Thank you for the question, and thank you. Um, what I do, and was done with me with my sponsor, is that um, at the end, at the end of 164 pages of the big book, um, I have found that um, I tell them that I'm their sponsor as long as they'd like me to be, and I'm here for them. I hope that we will stay in touch um, by phone, by email, by text, um, that I am there for them. I hope they are there for me. And um, I, I then move on to another sponsee. And I have found that when this process ends, I find that I not only have fellows in the program, but I have made friends in the program. When I said in my share that I have found that sponsoring has become another uh, path for spiritual connection, I really have been just every time I read the big book, I, I feel with each of my sponsees that it is a spiritual connection between me and this book and them. And um, I just am so grateful for the people who have asked me to sponsor them because I, I wouldn't be able to have this spiritual experience without them. I need them as much, if not more, than they need me. And I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Alicia. And thank you, Suzanne G. Who else has a question for Alicia? You can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name and the first letter of your last name. Jennifer B. I'm sorry, I didn't catch either. Jennifer C. 
Jennifer and Karen. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's correct. Thank you. Wendy B. Wendy D. Deanna P. Deanna P. Tamara C. Tamara C. Anyone else? Terry K. And Terry K. Well, let's get started with Jennifer. Good morning. This is Jennifer C. uh, from South Carolina. Um, Thank you so much for your story this morning. And um, the question I have is related to, um, you know, we say in program that abstinence is different than a food plan, right? And that the food plan is a tool, but not a definition of abstinence. And you talked about not being perfectionistic um, around your abstinence while also not giving yourself license to be careless. Um, Can you clarify about that? Yes, I can. Um, When I'm, uh, COVID (laughs) has given me, a wonderful opportunity that I'm not sure I would have seen on my own. Um, I'm eating at home more now and um, going out less. Um, And for many, many, many months, at least five of these seven months, um, we didn't go out at all um, or even bring in. Um, When I go out, I do not weigh and measure my food. Um, And I didn't even realize that it made a difference. Um, it, It, I don't know if it made a difference in my weight. I don't weigh myself anymore, but my clothes all fit. But it just didn't feel the same to eat restaurant food. And um, I don't know what they're putting in it when they're in the kitchen preparing. And um, I don't weigh and measure. Um, I tried to for, for years to do that, and I just, I just had difficulty doing it. Um, I am very vigilant about how I order in a restaurant as far as, you know, my dressing on the side and is there any, you know, sugar on that or um, no croutons on my salad or um, so I'm very careful about what I order. But um, eating at home has has just been, uh, it's just given me even more freedom um, knowing that I can eat guilt-free and um, I uh, let me think. I'm trying to think what other part of your question. Um, so, I'm sorry. Was was there another part of your question that I missed? Star one to to let me know if you've if I've answered your question. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, Yes, so I guess just clarifying, is is there a difference for you between your food plan and your definition of abstinence? Um, Has has there been a a differentiation between the two, or are they synonymous for you? Thank you. Thanks for that clarification and reminder. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Abstinence. My abstinence um, has to be... um, foods, uh, the elimination of foods 
that cause me to have cravings, that trigger my cravings, that trigger my mental obsessions. Um, when I don't have those, then I can live my life free of food, uh, food thoughts and the domination the food has on me, my body, my brain. Um, so that my abstinence is, yeah, eliminating those foods. Like the artificial sweeteners were one of the last things to go. Um, I had to really be convinced and honest and willing, and all of that came to me. And um, as far as my food plan, my food plan um, is, is my food plan. It's different. I believe, as I said, that food plans um, are different for each person. Whatever works for one may not work for all. In fact, it doesn't. Um, I've heard all kinds of food plans that people have shared over the years that I've been in programs. Um, and, uh, but abstinence, uh, what I see as abstinence for myself and for what I understand from the big book is abstinence, the elimination of whether it's alcohol. Um, and of course, I, I didn't include alcohol on my abstinence list, but I, I'm not even interested in alcohol. So that's not even, a, that, that's probably why I left it off. Um, but I believe those are the elimination of the foods that drive me crazy. And I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Jennifer C. Karen G., your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Karen G., um, uh, recovering in New Jersey. Thank you so much for your service and for the terrific share. My, my question is if you could talk about how you deal with your sponsees when they either relapse or slip. Do you see a difference between relapse and slip? And um, do you, how do you, what do you do? Do you, do you like fire, ever fire a sponsee? I mean, that's sort of my question. Yes, thank you. Um, the difference I see between slip and relapse, first of all, I have experienced and I've uh, either with myself or sponsees, um, whether it's a, an intentional slip or a, a mistake slip, an accident, uh, something that you don't know is in your food, um, or you taste something and you realize it's full of sugar and you put it aside, or in the case of an intentional slip, you continue to eat it. Um, relapse, I've always thought of as being um, <laughs> a long slip. But, you know, I just, I can't get caught up on semantics. Um, if I'm having intentional slips, I'm, I'm, I'm in relapse. Um, so um, I, I don't want to get hung up on that, but I also um, will answer your question about, you know, what I've done with sponsees. Uh, luckily, in the last uh, two years that I've been sponsoring through the big book, um, the steps through the big book, I have only had a few people uh, just a couple of people who um, broke their abstinence while we were doing the steps. And what I ask on the, just at the upfront of, of getting, um, starting this relationship, I do, if you will, an interview, so to speak, asking about mutual times because I spend three to four hours a week with a sponsee reading an hour at a time, the big book uh, together. And um, I ask them to be honest with me no matter what. And um, I ask them if they'll agree to that, to be willing and honest. And they have. 
but the people who have had a slip, I do ask um, that we, um, I, I might either, uh, we, we definitely discuss it, but we've taken a break. Um, I've waited a couple of days, as the big book instructs me, uh, for them to clean their, their abstinence up. Um, it really depends. It so depends on what the situation was. You know, was it an accident? Was it uh, intentional? Um, I, that really is something that I have to hear from the sponsee. And as far as a full-blown getting into the slips, turning into a relapse or getting into the food, when they're ready to get abstinent, to call me back and to stay in touch, even during uh, the relapse, um, to stay in touch and that I'm, I'm here. And, um, but I, I won't take them through the steps, continue taking them through the steps. I've never fired anybody. I, I don't even like that word. <laughs> I, um, I, I will stay in touch and, um, and uh, let's see, I was going to, say something else about that. Um, I don't know if it comes to me. I'm sure it will once I not try to make it come up. Um, so, so I hope that answers your question. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen G. Wendy B., your turn. Yeah, hi. This is Wendy B., um, recovered in Arizona. And I just I love the freedom in your approach. Um, you know, and I identify with the statement that you said, uh, wear your recovery like a cloak, not a straitjacket. And um so my question is, how do you handle fellows who are more rigid in their approach? Um, you know, that that make me feel like I'm doing it wrong, you know, if I'm not following their rules. And um so that's my question. Thank you. Okay, um, I don't know if you're coming from the perspective of other fellows in the program who might um, share their recovery um, and they're more um, regimented than you are or more yeah, rigid. In, in program. Okay, okay, fine. Um, you know what, my sponsor would tell me my food is between me and God. And um, I... You know, I had had food sponsors in the past, and I had lied to every one of them. So reporting my food to a food sponsor never worked for me. In fact, you know, I know that in recovery, trust has to be um, my mantra. In fact, every day, it just circles my brain that I have to trust God. And everybody's doing, you know, this program gives us the freedom to work this program with hopefully another fellow or fellows and to do what works for us. You know, what works for me may not work for you. Um, I'm on a food plan where I'm eating six times a day. Some people can only do three times a day. Um, I've, I've had to abstain from things that other people can have. Um, and I cannot compare myself with other fellows. My recovery is between me and my God. And if it's not working, then I need to get honest with myself, with God, and with my sponsor or another fellow in this program. Um, 
I have to do what, what works for me. You know, I, I enjoy yoga. That works for me. Not everybody does yoga. Um, my meditation and prayer is done throughout the day. That's what has worked for me. That's what keeps me um, in this recovery. That's what I have discovered works for me. And I need to do what works for me. Um, I thought for years I was in recovery and abstinent until I went through the big book and realized that I, I don't think I ever really sponsored. I don't know that I was ever really sober. I think I was dry um, and white-knuckling the food every single day of my life. But I have never experienced the neutrality that I have now. And um, I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Wendy B. Deanna P., your turn. Good morning. This is Deanna P. from Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you so much for walking your heart with us for a minute. You stated that the steps through your program and you also shared um, your experience, strength, and hope in both your personal journey and how um, compulsive overeating uh, is a family disease, a little bit about that. I'm wondering if there are particular steps that have been helpful to you in your distinct roles as a professional, a wife, a mother, an individual, and if there are some steps that um, are particularly challenging to you in those roles. Well, um, I'm not sure I can cite any particular steps. I, I tend to want to live these steps, um, you know, during the day, part of my, my recovery in my life. But I will say that, um, and this, this I don't think comes from the steps, but I mean, it actually comes from the steps, but it's not written as such. But um, I'm learning to listen more and to keep my mouth shut. Um, and where that wisdom came from, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but I, I think that, you know, as far as admitting I'm powerless over food, that, that just is a given. That is a given. And the second and third steps, thankfully came very easily for me because I've always believed there's something out there, up there, in there that I just didn't, you know, um, I didn't plug into. I didn't know I was supposed to. I didn't know I could. Um, I didn't know I needed to. Um, so as I said earlier, I hear the words trust God throughout my head all day long. And, um, and, Thanks to COVID, um, it has helped me totally slow down. I was busy. I was always busy. My anxiety kept me moving, cleaning. Um, I still tend to be a cleaner. Uh, people think that's a wonderful trait. It's almost like the, the bad press that a workaholic gets because, you know, they bring in maybe good money and they work, but cleaning and having a clean house is, is not what, you know, this is about. And I tend to, once I see that behavior starting, I will calm it down. Um, I don't have my errands to run to. My only errand 
in the last seven months, the main errand I have is to get to the grocery store and get my abstinent food in the house. Um, but I, um, as far as a moral inventory, doing a tenth step, um, that tenth step has been just an incredible tool for me to, um, or an incredible step for me to look at during the day. Um, you know, there are times when um, I've opened my mouth, even though it's been less and less as the time has passed, um, where I have to look at what I've said, pass it maybe by another fellow, and go and clean it up, um, whether it's to say an amends or to rethink it and to become aware that I don't need to have an opinion about this. Um, so I'm, I know that step seven for me was, was a little misleading for me, um, only because of my own head. I thought that once I prayed my defects away, it would be magical and I would be, you know, not driven by these defects. But that's just not the case because I am human and um, defects come from the factory. And uh, these are my defaults. So um, those, are, those are defects. Those defects that I have, I mentioned some of them in my share about being self-righteous and judgmental and jealous and controlling. Um, those are things that I pray about. Those are included in my prayer that I would, you know, say, say the step three prayer, the step seven prayer have been helpful to me. Um, not that I say them every day. I don't. Um, but when I need them, I do. When I feel like I need to be reminded, I do. Um, taking personal inventory. I mean, that that is step 10 for me and seems to just... Um, you know, happen for me throughout the day as I look at myself. Again, um, COVID has given me a chance to really be mindful and be more intentional with my practice than ever before because I'm spending more, more time with myself and not running around with my errands. And 11 is very important and 12 has been amazing. I've even, I also encourage my sponsees to sponsor that's another thing that Suzanne asked about, and um, I probably needed to say that I do encourage my sponsors to sponsor. I've told them how important and how it's made such a spiritual impact on me. Um, and with that, I will pass, and I hope I've answered your question. Thank you, Deanna P. Tamara C. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Leah, for this meeting, and thank you, Alicia, for sharing your story. Um, you kind of just spoke about um, what what my question was, but maybe maybe I'll have something to add. Um, it really uh, spoke to me when you said, um, I have to get past my self-willed voice so that I can hear God's voice. And I was going to ask you uh, to share a bit of how the steps helped you do that. And that's my question. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, you know, I can't pinpoint where it happened. Um, working the steps with my sponsor was a process. And um, taking these words to heart when she and I read, um, when I've read with all the sponsees over these years, um, taking these words in, you know, I see something, I hear something different every time. <laughs> 
um, this word, th- this book is the only book I've read that has a different, you know, um, gets to me or I can read it differently or hear it differently, more in depth each time, um, understanding it better each time. Um, I, I didn't realize that my self-will was in my way. You know, I'm, I'm my biggest problem. I am the problem. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I know that, um, you know, um, that my self-will voice has gotten quieter and quieter as I've worked the steps uh, myself on a daily basis and as I've worked with sponsees. And there is so much value in what they share with me. Um, and that has really helped me uh, become aware of my self-will voice and how loud it was. It was the first voice. It is the first voice I hear. Uh, not as much anymore, but it certainly was the loudest and the first voice I heard. Um, I know I've heard people in the meetings here in Richmond say that I don't listen to the first voice I hear or the first answer I have in my head. I listen, I wait for the second one, and the second one is usually God's will. And, um, yeah, um, I hope that answers that. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara C. Carrie Kay, your turn. This is Carrie Kay from Missouri, recovered and Thank you so much, Leah, for your continued service. And Alicia, thank you for your share. Your story was um, very, many points of it were very similar to mine. And I'm curious to hear more. Um, so I had a Jewish upbringing, as you shared, and I had a, a similar um, experience not having a relationship with a higher power in, my, in that upbringing. And then recovery brought me that relationship that I craved. Um, and I'm just wondering what your experience was like as you developed your relationship in recovery with your higher power, how that um, connected back or didn't connect back, as was my case, to your um, original faith? Yes. Um, you know, I was hoping that that would happen, but I I really didn't get any kind of education, Jewish education. Um, I grew up in a very small city, um, about 45 minutes outside of Richmond, and um, uh, my my synagogue was very small and um, we would go to Sunday school and I basically was given, you know, two sheets stapled together on questions and answers about the Jewish faith. Um, so I really didn't have a Jewish education and it, it wasn't something that I had growing up and um, and, and as I said and, and you related to, I, I also... Um, you know, there was there was no mention of any kind of God. It was just sort of taken for granted that we believed in one God and God was there, but I didn't know where. And um, I, I wasn't led back to Judaism. I, I've often thought that, you know, I, I wish it had, but I really get what I'm needing from this program, uh, from the fellowship, from the big book, uh, working the steps through my life, um, I've gotten more than I've I've ever wanted to get, or even knew I I could get. And I have read, and I won't mention books on the line, but please feel free to call me, and I'll share those books with you. I've read books where they've talked about 
you know, the 12-step recovery and being Jewish um, or how Judaism is so similar to, to the 12 steps. And what I've come to find is that every religion, um, well, not every, I can't make that general statement, but a lot of the religions that I hear about um, all offer these, these same kinds of values um, that we're trying to live or I'm trying to live in my recovery. And I'll pass. Thank you, Carrie Kay, for the question. We have time for perhaps two more questions. Anyone else have a question? Anita J. Anita, hello. And anyone else? Sorry, C. And Sorry, C. Very good. Anita J., go ahead with your question, please. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. What a wonderful share. I got a lot, so much out of it, identification. Anyway, I was wondering if you'd speak about you and your family. If you had children, you have a husband, did they, have they noticed anything? I, I just wonder, you know? Yeah. If you'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Thank you. Yes. First, thank you very much. And um, yes, I have, um, I have a wonderful family. My husband, my two daughters and son, um, they're in their 40s now. And, um, well, not my husband. <laughs> um, but um, they, I, I don't know how much they understand, but they are so respectful and supportive of my disease and my recovery. I mean, this morning I got text from, um, you know, my kids cheering me on and, um they they did not know uh, growing up um, what was going on. Um, I'm sad to say that I took a lot of my anger out on them, not so much physically, but I was an emotional abuser. I yelled a lot. I punished them and put them in their rooms because I wanted to eat in the kitchen alone or be alone, um, alone with my food. Um, I remember it was the 70s. And, um, and and beginning of the 80s uh, that, you know, I'd send them all out on a, on a pretty day and send them in the yard and I would just be in the back in the kitchen um, going through the pantry and trying to eat as fast as I could and covering up the evidence. Or if I finished it, finished the package of cookies, I would put it on my list to be sure and get to the store as soon as I could and get some more and eat it down to where they knew it was. Um, there was one incident where my husband, who would get home after about 11 or 12 hours of work, he'd get home and he would be in charge of the kids' baths after dinner. And um, at dinner that night, he had asked me for some an item to have with his soup. And I said, oh, we don't have any more. Um, the kids must have eaten it. And so I was doing the dinner dishes. He was upstairs with the kids' baths, and um, he came down after he bathed them. And he said, Alicia, I asked the kids about those chips, and he said, they didn't have them. And there was just silence, and he went back upstairs. So he knew something was going on. You know, he's a normal eater. Um, I don't even know what must have been going through his mind, except that his wife (laughs) lied about food. You know, how crazy is that? But um, 
you know, he didn't know. I didn't know I was sick. Um, and uh, we had those kinds of situations uh, that would occur through the years. Um, we would go to Disney World, and I would think to myself, how do I get rid of the four of them so I can stop at one of these eateries and <laughs> get some ice cream or cookie, gigantic cookie or, you know, a Mickey Mouse cupcake or whatever. Um, I couldn't even enjoy Disney World. I was too busy thinking about where I was going to get my next fix. Um, and in comparison, I'll just share with you that yesterday my family and I went we drove about an hour and a half, and we took our bikes. We love to bike ride, and we took our bicycles. And um, I, oh, my God, I, in my sobriety, I just drove for 18, what was it, uh, 16, 16 miles and enjoyed the colors of the leaves and the forest and, you know, my kids biking beside me and having conversations and it was incredible, something that I just never thought I would be able to to do. And um, just feeling very grateful for my family and and this recovery. I hope that answers that. Thank you, Anita J., for your question. And Cerise, you'll be the have the final question for today. Um. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, well, thank you so much for your share, Alicia. Um, so I wanted to ask how you had mentioned something in the beginning about how your, uh, you know, your mother just organized and your father just um, ate and um, with the books and how the lack of emotional presence, I guess, from the father um, and, and then how your mother used you almost as a therapist. And, and I'm just finding a lot of commonalities um but uh, how how do you feel that that um contributed to your food um you know your uh, your addiction to food and then also um to what degree did like at what point in the process does that get past your head like is that an amends type of thing were you able to do amends for those things that's my question okay thank you First of all, I don't believe my dad being emotionally distant or absent um, or my mom's hoarding uh, contributed to my eating disorder. Um, my belief, and this is mine, um, I believe I'm um, uh, genetically um, predisposed to this, to this disease. Um, I saw it through my family, my mom and dad, um, as I said, sugar, flour for my dad, sugar for my mom, my grandparents. I mean, my mother's side of the family was riddled with diabetes. Um, I, I don't believe um, their dysfunction or their lack of knowing how to parent, which, of course, I had no idea how to parent. Um, I was flying by the seat of my pants. And um, not doing a good job of it at that. Um, but as far as amends, um, you know, what it did contribute to um, were the resentments I built up and that I held on to for way too long in my life. Um, I was not able to make amends to my father. Um, I have written a letter uh, when I worked some steps 
in another mode, another way of working the steps through another, it, it was an LA program, but um, through another method. Um, you know, we go through the, the steps. Some people do the workbook. They do, you know, all kinds of groups. Um, this was a group I was in, and I, I wrote a letter to my father um, making amends and realizing in that fourth and fifth step that a lot of the same things I blamed him for, I did in my life. I did with my children. I've done with people um, that I, um, that there was no way that I could judge him and hold resentments uh, against him anymore. I'm sorry I wasn't able to do that when he was living. Um, my mother, I was able to make amends to. Um, and um, she, of course, uh, was relieved. And uh, as I told you, we, we both just cried. Um, it was such a relief. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that answers your question um, um, about my parents and how they might have contributed. But again, like I said, and, and this was very important for me to understand, and that is that um, I don't think they contributed to my disease. I, you know, it's, it wasn't contagious, <laughs> except maybe through, through the genes, but... Um, I think I got this eating disorder, you know, or I have this eating disorder, and um, this is what I need to do to live a healthy and normal life, and um, just grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you, Suri C., for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, speaking of gratitude, we're grateful for your story this morning, Alicia, Thank you for giving so much of yourself and sharing your profound and inspiring transformation with all of us on the line. Much appreciated. Again, the share ID for today, 15,569. That's 15569. And we're going to close. From page 164, you'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>